I'm Meg Rosenberg, and this is New Books in Physics. Welcome and thank you for listening. I just sat down with Roberto Trotta to talk about his new book, The Edge of the Sky, All You Need to Know About the All There Is. This was published by Basic Books this past September 2014, and it's unlike any physics book I've ever read. Dr. Trotta uses only the thousand or ten hundred most common words in the English language to describe the latest discoveries and current understanding of the universe, and he really succeeds in tapping into a different way of coming to know modern astrophysics. The result will appeal to readers interested in cosmology from a whole range of backgrounds, from beginners to experts. And with that, here is our conversation. So I'm here today to talk with Dr. Roberto Trotta about his new book, The Edge of the Sky, All You Need to Know About the All There Is. Dr. Trotta is a senior lecturer in astrophysics at Imperial College London, and in addition to studying how the universe works, or the all there is, which we'll come back to in a second, he is a very accomplished science communicator, consultant, and now an author. And I'm so excited to talk to him today about his wonderful new book. So Dr. Trotta, welcome to New Books in Physics, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Meg. It's great to be here. <laughs> well, maybe you could start off our conversation by saying a little bit about yourself. Uh, what drew you to become a scientist, and why study physics in particular? Well, to become a scientist was not something that I necessarily dreamt of or dreamt about as I was a kid. Um, I, when I grew up in Switzerland, that's where I'm from originally. My parents were from Italy, but they emigrated to Switzerland uh, many, many years ago. So I was born and grew up in the Italian-speaking part of Switzerland. And when I was growing up, I didn't really know what I, w- I wanted to become. But then uh, when I went to high school, I, um, I, I had a very inspirational physics teacher who really got me into physics. And then uh, for this reason, I went on and studied physics at university at ETH Zurich. And again, it's one of those moments in life where you have these sliding door moments where you, um, your life changes completely because of a twist and a turn in the story that you don't necessarily expect. And so when I actually started doing my diploma thesis, which was my uh, master thesis, I ended up doing one in cosmology because I was fascinated by uh, the biggest questions uh, about the universe, where it comes from, and how can we actually give scientific answers to those big questions. And that's what got me really excited and fired up about understanding the universe. And I figured that if I was to be a physicist, I'd better be one that asks the, the, the deepest, hardest, biggest questions there, there is, namely about the origins of the universe, its final destiny, its ultimate reality, and so on. And that is what really got me into, into cosmology, that's to say the study of the universe uh, on its biggest scales. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just finished the new book that came out, The Edge of the Sky, uh, and I'd like to ask you, how did you come to write this particular book? I've been uh, doing outreach and communication of science for over a decade now, and I've done hundreds of public lectures and science festivals and events, but all the time as I was doing all these activities to engage the public with the uh, with the big questions of, 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 my, of, my, of my work and the kind of science that I do, I was always looking for new ways of talking to them and, and speaking a language that uh, would connect with people in the best possible way and would give them uh, the possibility of, of, of engaging with cosmology without jargon, without uh, technical words, and finding ways of bringing the big concepts and the somewhat complex ideas of cosmology down to a human scale to make them more understandable, more approachable, and, and, and perhaps more fun as well. And so over the years, I've tried different things. I've worked with artists and filmmakers and designers and architects to create artworks, for example, that would try and, and translate those ideas, those cosmological ideas, in more uh, hands-on experiences for, for the public. I've worked with food and, and, and cookery to, to illustrate some ideas in cosmology, the expansion of the universe with a pizza dough, for example. <laughs> and so I tried different things because I really wanted to find ways of talking about uh, cosmology in a way that not only speaks to people's minds, but also to their hearts, to bring back passion and creativity and a more and a less intellectual side of things, but a more emotional side of things, which is a big part of what science is about. That's about creativity, passion, as much as it is about brain power and intellectual uh, quest. And so the edge of the sky is, is, the, is the result of this, of this search of mine to try and find new ways of talking about cosmology in a way that's accessible to everybody and, and hopefully will sparkle enthusiasm and engagement for, for the subject. So can you tell us um, 
this book is special because you use uh, a limited vocabulary. Uh, where did that idea come from? And um, how did you decide to take it one step further and, and use it to write a book? Yes, uh, the book is rather different from any book that you have uh, ever read about uh, the universe or you're likely to read because it's written using only the most common thousand words in English. And that's why uh, the, the subtitle of the book is All You Need to Know About the All There Is. Um, the book is about the universe, but of course, the universe is not one of the words. So the universe becomes the, the all there is. And so the idea comes uh, again from one of those random moments in life when you stumble upon something and, and something happens to you. And one day, a year, a year and a half ago, I was um, looking at, at some things on the internet and I, and I, and I found this uh, website where uh, readers were challenged to write up their job description using the most common thousand words in English. Um, and the idea itself from the website had come from an XKCD cartoon. Now, if, 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 you know, for mm -hmm. people who don't know XKCD, this is a, a, a very a very well-known um, web-based comic where um, Randall Monroe, who is the creator of XKCD, has created a series of cartoons that are often physics-based or computer science-based, and they're very geeky in a sense. They're very so that's difficult to understand. I don't understand most of them, frankly, because they are they are too specialized. Uh, but they're, you know, they're, they're very interesting because when when you get them, they're very they're very fun. Uh, and so one of them was the Upgoer Five, and the Upgoer Five was a sketch of the Saturn V moon rocket, which was labeled. Whose parts were all labeled using only the most common thousand words? And so because uh, Saturn and rocket were not two of the possible words in the thousand words list. Randall called it the upgoer for Rocket 5, because it was number 5. And all the rest of it was also labeled according to this, uh, to this thousand words. So that's where the original idea came from that was then mutuated by the website, which is where I found it. Uh, um, and, 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 and then I wrote up my job description using thousand words. Uh, and uh, I, I put it on my website. And it was very hard, actually. It took me over an hour to write three paragraphs. <laughs> and... Uh, and it was really uh, more difficult than I, than I would have thought. And I put it on my website and I forgot about it uh, until uh, a few weeks later, I was giving a, a talk at an art venue in East London, the White Building. And the person who introduced me, uh, God bless him, uh, mentioned this idea of the thousand words that he had found on my website. And one uh, person in the audience at the end, during the Q&A, asked me about it. What, what was this idea of the thousand words? Uh, because it wasn't clear from the description. And so I read aloud to the public because I had it in my computer, the three, or four, three paragraphs I had written about my job. And I got an unexpectedly warm, enthusiastic reaction. I had a, a big round of applause, much better than for my talk, actually, <laughs> which, was, which, was a, which, was, which was interesting. And, and, and that was a, a small eureka moment, the moment where I thought, well, actually, this format is great. It really fires up people's imagination. It really works. And perhaps, just perhaps, I can stretch it book length. That's where The Edge of the Sky came from. Okay, that's quite a story. <laughs> I've seen, I, I know there's a there's a web text editor for the Upgoer 5 language that I've seen. I've played around with it myself. It is hard, unless I'm sure you get used to it, but there's quite some surprising words that are either not there or that are there. <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's right, that's right. The, the, the first time you go through the list, you, you are surprised at, at, at the words that are in it and they're and, and, and also the ones that are not in it. Um, and so at the very beginning for me, it was very, very hard to work with this list. But then little by little, I started getting the hang of it. And so I, I, I really started to develop a new language, if you like. I had to take all the words that I wanted to use, but I didn't have, like uh, particle or energy or telescope or galaxy or planet, all those words I didn't have. And so I had to build a, a different vocabulary, a different language that would express those ideas using a thousand words. So for example, planets become crazy stars because you know, they go around in a pattern motion on the sky that's not regular like the other stars. A telescope is a big seer, uh, a galaxy is a star crowd, and uh, the Milky Way is the white road. Um, the universe is the old race, scientists are student people, and so on. The, the, the new language emerged from the constrained lexicon itself, and little by little it became like really speaking a new, a new language, a different one. <laughs> okay, so let's get into the book itself. Um, the first chapter is called The First Night, and you start off by introducing a main character, a female scientist, or 
student woman, I guess, <laughs> on her way up right. to a very large telescope or big seer to begin a night of observing. Um, so my first thought was, is this Hawaii that she's going to to observe? It, it could be. It could be. Uh, definitely, I, I must admit, uh, I, I did have Hawaii in the back of my mind as I wrote this because that's that's the one place high up in the mountains, the one observatory I have been to. I am not an <laughs> observer. I'm a theoretical cosmologist, so I don't go out on observing trips. And in fact, some of the experiences that she has, I had to ask around my colleagues to make them as faithful as possible uh, because I, I don't do this kind of trips. So I, I did have Mona Kia in the back of my mind, but, you know, if, if, if my readers really can imagine something else, it's absolutely fine. That's part of what this book is about, to give people impressions and, and, and let their imagination roam free. So I, I don't want to be prescriptive in any way. Now, one thing I want to say straight off the bat is that uh, there are some poetic licenses, of course, in the book, and one of them is having my my student woman go out to Big Seer all, all by herself, which of course would never happen in the real world because of health and safety. It's not, it's not safe to go at 13,000 feet um, observing on your own because it's, it's very high up, there's lack of oxygen, and it's, very, it's, it's kind of dangerous actually, so this wouldn't happen. But it's a poetic license uh, to make it a little bit more dramatic and also to give it a little bit more of a of a tension between the first character, which is the student woman you refer to, but also the second character in the book, which is Big Seer himself, which I really see as a character in its own right. Um, not, not just for the name that sort of personifies the telescope, but also for his qualities of helper, sort of the masculine principle, together with the feminine principle of student woman, and together they try to figure out the entire universe, really. Hmm. Okay, that is actually a question that I had. So why choose a first-person narrator, and why choose a woman? Well, the choice of woman came very naturally to me. I, didn't, I never really paused to question it. And um, I, I guess if I reconstruct or deconstruct the, my reasons, um, I, I, on a very rational level, I think uh, the reason why I chose a woman is because I, I, I think that, well, it, it is a fact that women are underrepresented in physics and certainly in astrophysics and astronomy. And so we need to, uh, to have more role models, like uh, women role models for, for young girls and, and, and young adults to go into science. And so to, to break the stereotype that all, of, all scientists, all astronomers are middle-aged um, men with a white beard and a bald patch on, on, on their head and, and actually have a, a, a woman have, have the role of main character was for me an important way of making the point that actually science is not just for men and it's and, and it's and, and women being unrepresented um, we, we need more women in astronomy and so having a main character that's a woman for me was 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 a, was a way of taking that stance of, of fighting for that, that battle a little bit and also because I think on a more abstract and perhaps more unconscious level if you like, because I've always seen Big Seer as a personification of, of a male principle, having a, a female principle uh, counterpart um, made it made, made made the story more complete and more and more balanced. I think in my in my in my eyes. Can you explain what you mean by male principle for the Big Seer? Well, uh, telescope in Italian, which is my mother tongue, is is is, is masculine, and so I, I guess it's, it's natural. It just came to me naturally to think of. Of it as as if it was a, a him a, a he actually so I think in the back of my mind I would thought of Big Seer as as a, as a masculine um, character as, as, a, as a male character um, and also Big Seer sort of evokes evokes to me um, some idea of, of of a shaman perhaps or something a little bit mystical like that uh, which tradition in traditional society societies at least is uh, usually linked with uh, with the male. Uh, a character rather than a female, although I'm sure there are, there are anthropologists out there who can point me to uh, other societies where female uh, characters take on this role. So anyhow, but for all those reasons, I guess in the back of my mind, uh, it, the, 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 the big seer, the telescope, was always a, a male character, and that's why uh, I referred to, to it as, as a, a he in, in, in the book, and, and therefore... Uh, hence, this this counterpart to the to the woman to the student woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so she gets up to the top of the mountain after dealing with some elevation sickness. Like you said, it's very high up there, um, and she turns on the big seer and says, "Dark matter, here we come." 
Um, (laughs) So most of the technical terms in this book, you have to describe them in different words, uh, but dark matter is actually allowed by the thousand most common words. So that uh, just made me wonder when you weren't constrained by the vocabulary in that choice, was it tempting to make up a new name anyway? Did you find that there was a certain clarity in renaming the technical terms or did it get in the way and you were happy to revert to the actual term wherever possible? That's a good question. And uh, there were many terms that were allowed and I could just use. Um, that matter, well, yes, it is a technical name, but um, it's, it's simple enough as testified by the fact that both words are in the thousand words list. So it, it is a simple const- construct in, in terms of words that could be either seen as a technical name or just a, a simple name for, for, for what dark matter is supposed to be. So dark matter is a case in point, and then there was another one, which is the redshift, which uh, redshift per se, it's not in the, in the list of words, but if you write it as red hyphen shift, then you have both words, which in the book is called tired light mm-hmm. uh, as well. Uh, and so in answer to your question, I was tempted to not use some of those words, for example, redshift, I, I, I do rephrase it in terms of tired light because I think it's more, it's a more poetic way of expressing it. But um, I tried very hard to avoid making the book into an exercise of style. The point of the book is not to show how we can use this lexicon to be more clever in using our language, but it's about hopefully clarifying some concepts that are otherwise uh, described in terms of jargon jargon terms or complicated words in simple terms that will be accessible to anybody, but also uh, um, using this language in a way that it will force me to come up with more metaphorical, more pictorial images for complicated concepts and explain them in different ways. So it's very much a question of using this um, straitjacket that is the limited lexicon to my advantage or hopefully to my reader's advantage and to fire up their imagination, give them new eyes about the universe, fresh, childlike, I hope, new eyes uh, that will uh, make the, the, the concepts and the ideas stand out and, and come across in a different way, in a way that they hopefully haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you alluded to this a little earlier, but the next star, uh, chapter, the crazy stars, um, are planets. Uh, can, you, can you explain why, again, you chose those words to describe a planet, since you weren't allowed to use that word? Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Crazy stars uh, was 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 uh, relatively easy because uh, uh, planets, when observed, at least the planets in our solar system, when observed from the Earth, they have a motion on the sky that appears to go in one direction for a while, and then it stops, and then it goes back for a while, and then it stops again, and then resumes the uh, the other direction. That's because of the combination of our circular motion around the sun and their circular motion on the sun. So that is. Uh, this, this apparent uh, back and forth is uh, something that's been known from antiquity, of course, and that in, in ancient models of the universe was solved with a model of the epicycles before we understood that uh, it, you know, it was just a combination of our respective orbits around the sun. And so for this reason, they don't go around. Their apparent motion in the sky is not the same as all the other stars, which actually just you know, rays from, from, from the east and then, and then set in the west. And so that's why they, they appear to be crazy or, or, or certainly not as regular as all the other stars. And so I call them crazy, crazy stars. I suppose I could have called them drunken stars as well. <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, that's, that's, that's the reason why they're called like that. Mm-hmm. And I like that this chapter goes all the way back to antiquity and has this kind of very large arc time-wise all the way to the present. Um, it's, uh, it's very mythological. Um, I mean, that's literally mythological because you're recounting the myths, but the retelling of the scientific concepts sort of also fits into that mold. And it's, uh, it's a very fresh perspective on learning some of these concepts. Um, well, th- thank you. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that it comes across like that. Uh, I think it's important to give uh, my, my story an arc, as you say. It's not something that's concerned with the last... 20, 50, or 100 years, really something that tries to recount in as little as 96 pages or so, sort of the entire history of how we came to know what we do know about the older is, and also all the things that we don't know, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, the term student people, which you mentioned before, that means scientist. Um, 
I, I imagine you must have had a lot of different choices for how to describe scientists. Uh, why did you choose to call them student people? Uh, yes, in, in, certainly to my eyes, one of the defining characteristics of what scientists do, or at least the way I understand my job as a scientist, is, is the job of asking questions. And, and so why questions in the book are questions of science. Uh, and so in that sense, we never stop being students. We never stop exploring. We never stop asking questions. And that's why, in my, in my mind, this was the defining characteristics of what science is about, continuing asking questions and keep studying the universe and never quite graduating from being students because every question will sparkle a new question and a harder question all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's appropriate, I think. <laughs> um So moving on to chapter three, A Bigger Place, Uh, you introduce some historical figures, Mr. Hubble and Mr. Einstein. And I notice you include some names of people, but never names of places. So what's your reasoning behind that? That's right. Um, Again, this is one of the rules that I've given myself, namely to be allowed to use names of people, uh, but not but, but, but not toponyms, not, not names of place. And uh, I, the reason is, again, because I didn't want this book to become an exercise in style. And so to disallow names of people would have made the task almost impossible. Why use a metaphor or a roundabout way of referring to Einstein uh, when I could just use his name? And, and I don't think that using a roundabout, clever or not clever way of talking about Einstein would have made the book any clearer than, than this. Indeed, it would have made it only more obscure, I think, so it wouldn't have served my purpose of, 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 being, um, of being simple and, and straightforward in my language. Um, names of places, it, it's, uh, it's a little bit different in that, yes, I could have used them, but it seemed to me that names of places are easy enough to substitute with uh, uh, other words that I could do away without, uh, I could do away with them and w- without losing clarity and indeed adding adding perhaps a sparkle of surprise here and there when I refer to places or countries or, or cities in a way that hopefully would be clear to all my readers, uh, but perhaps from a different perspective, slightly different perspective. So it, it adds, I think, a little bit of, um, of, a, of a sparkle to, to the text to be able to do that, uh, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been the case for, for people. So I just given myself a set of rules and I've, I've stick with them. And, and they're arbitrary to some extent, uh, but that's my reasoning behind them. Well, I really like some of the descriptions of places that you come up with, and it's a fun puzzle, in a sense, to you know figure out what you're talking about. Um, uh-huh. I think one of my, well, I have two favorites. One is um, Antarctica, which you describe as a cold place near the bottom of our home world. It's a place where the sun is always up for half the year and always down for the other half. And I think that's a very clear way of, you know, pointing out a particular <laughs> a particular <laughs> place that people are familiar with. Um and the other is Mount Wilson. Uh, we speak about Mr. Hubble, who was observing, and uh, he was here in Southern California at uh, Mount Wilson Observatory, and you describe it as a student people place near a city that a few years later would become the most important place for people making movies. <laughs> right. And again, like I think that's uh, it's just a very apt way of saying it, and uh, I really enjoyed those descriptions. Well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> in a way, I think this description of Mount Wilson might even be clearer to, to, to some people, or, or for example, to, to children who might or might not know about Mount Wilson and Caltech, and although, you know, one, if one, one is a scientist, one thinks that Caltech is worldwide renowned, and, and it is, but not everybody will have heard of it necessarily. And so to talk about the place where people uh, make movies, in, in, in this global culture, I think uh, pretty much everybody knows what Hollywood is about and where it is, and, and if they don't know where it is exactly, they will know, they, they will have heard of, of a place where movies come from, and so in a way, it's clearer not to use the word uh, Pasadena or, or Los Angeles or California and just refer to it in this roundabout way, which in a way ties in, perhaps, I hope, better with, with what is our culture of, uh, at this day and age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, can you uh, explain again a little bit what you meant by tired light? And I think this has to do with the redshift distance relationship in this chapter three, but, but maybe if you could give us a brief description. Yes, certainly. I mean, a tired light is really just a, a, um, a poetic, perhaps, substitution to redshift, which is a quote-unquote proper scientific concept. Um, so, some people reading the book have, have, have imagined that it was a, a reference to the 
the actual theory of tired light, which uh, you know, many, many years ago was a, an alternative explanation for this concept of redshift, which has been since disallowed. But this is just a, 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 a metaphorical expression. It's not meant to be a, a technical term, tired light. And the idea behind it is the fact that as light travels to us from the furthest places in the universe, from distant galaxies, for example, uh, because light is made of waves, uh, and because the universe is expanding and growing with time, um, this means that the waves get stretched as light travels through space. And so stretching the, the wave, the, the, the light waves of light as it travels means that light loses energy and it also changes color. It becomes redder, uh, in fact. And that's, that's where the technical term comes from. We call it red shift. It's a shift towards the red of the color of the light. But I just call it tar light in, in the book because that's, that's what happens in a certain sense because the um, redshift means that the light loses energy and so in that sense it becomes tired, it becomes less energetic than it was before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, thank you. Sure. Um, so we return to the protagonist in the next chapter which is called The Big Flash and uh, she's kind of re reflecting back on her life and the choices that she made to become a scientist. Um, and you say in the book that she basically keeps asking these why questions until she's hit upon questions that no one knows the answers to yet. And my question for you is, as a scientist, is that how you also feel? Yes, very much. Um, so, some, of those, some of the aspects in this, in this character are loosely based on, on, on my experience, certainly. And, and this is very much how I feel, the fact that you, you study at undergraduate level um, the well-established theories in physics and then astrophysics and cosmology and at the gradual level you start dipping into the world of research where you start asking questions whose answer is not known in advance and then later as a postdoctoral researcher and then a professional scientist from uh, a member of staff at the research university all the time, what, what you do most of the time in your research is to ask questions whose answer is unknown and, and that's a completely different game than studying physics uh, at undergraduate level, where you reproduce results that, that have been known for, for centuries and sometimes. sometimes. So I think this is very much what science is about, to, to push those boundaries of knowledge and always try to find the most important questions. Uh, answers are important in science, but in my opinion, questions are even more important. Asking the right question is, is 90% of the, of, of, of the work. And then, then, of course, getting the answer is hard as well. But finding the good question that you can ask, a question that's new, important, solvable, and not too difficult uh, for, for, for you to, to crack. I think it's, uh, it's, it's one of the definitions of what science, fundamental science is for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I was really surprised that the word, well, the, the Big Bang uh, isn't allowed by the lexicon this time. So you, you call it the Big Flash instead. Um, yes. But there's some other words that I noticed, like chuckle is allowed and coffee and expression that are really more common. Um, and I was just wondering which words were the most surprising to you in, in this set? <laughs> yes. Um, the, you know, for the, the big flash was a, it's a good, it's a good example because uh, flash is, um, uh, it's useful for me that it was in there, but I didn't, I didn't necessarily expect it to be in there. Uh, although when I saw that I had flash in the list of, of, of words that were allowed, I thought, well, that's one is, this one is easy because the Big Bang is a very high energetic and, and very hot moment in the beginning of the universe. I thought, well, I'm going to call this the, the, the hot flash. And so I called it that for, for Big Bang. I called it that in the first version of my, of my of, in the first draft of my book. But then my editor, when she read it, she said, well, actually, you can't call it the hot flash. That, that means something else entirely. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't yeah. know. So. <laughs> is that, and so we changed it, and now it's called the big flash, and, and I'm, I'm, I've learned something as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yes, I mean, your question really goes at the heart of where does this list come from? And um, to be honest, all I did was to mutuate the same list that Randall Monroe had used in the XKCD and that was used in the uh, web-based um, um, editor that, uh, that I, I found at the beginning when I started this project. And, and this list itself comes from a Wikipedia entry um, where there's very little uh, detail as to how this list has been put together. The only thing that it says is that it's been put together from 9 million uh, words of contemporary fiction found online. So that's a very arbitrary source in a sense. And when my project started to become more important and more serious, I, I did go back and question the um, 
accuracy of that list. After all, if I was going to base an entire book on a list of words, where do the words come from? And you know, if I had chosen a different set set of works to base the, the list on, certainly the list would have included different sets of words, and and some and some would have been left out. But in the end, I came around to the point of view that, for my purpose, it's almost immaterial where the list exactly comes from. As long as you have a list, as long as you have a set of rules, and as long as all of those names on the list are simple, and which arguably they are, um, then what I'm interested in is not you know, to write using the most common thousand words in, on, in an absolute sense. I'm, 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 I'm interested in, in seeing what happens if I put on this um, straitjacket that, that, that is this limited lexicon, wherever the list comes from, and see what kind of uh, language emerges from it, what kind of poetic form, if you like, uh, are you forced to put together to talk about the universe with a given list? And so that list, like all the other rules we talked about, is to some extent arbitrary. Of course it is. Uh, but even so, I think the most important uh, aspect of it is what kind of picture of the order is emerges from, from this exercise, whether or not, you know, we, we can debate whether or not we have the right set of thousand words. I think that's, that's not the question that interests me most. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Big Bang is, uh, as a well, I'm not a physicist, um, but even as a scientist myself, it's it's hard enough to explain and understand using the, all the words available to us in the English language. Uh, could you explain to us briefly what the Big Bang is and uh, what was it like to try to describe it in the book? Yes, the Big Bang, the early universe, so that's to say the first fraction of a fraction of a second after the Big Bang itself, were really, really uh, difficult for me to uh, explain using this limited vocabulary. Uh, because Precisely, as you say, because I did not have any of the words that I really wanted to have. I didn't have particle, I didn't have energy, I didn't have uh, speed nor velocity, all the things that we use to try and, and explain these very early moments in the history of time. Uh, and so... From a scientific point of view, we do know lots and lots of things about the Big Bang. We know it started 13,798,000,000 years ago, give or take 37 million years, which is an astonishing accuracy for you know, a statement about the birth of the universe. And, and then in, in a very fast, very, sh- very fast sequence, in a very short amount of time, lots and lots of things happened. First, the universe expanded very, very fast in what we call inflation, uh, which is a, a burst of of, of exponential expansion that took the universe from microscopic size to um, cosmological size. But this was over in, in a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second. So the, the actual number is 10 to the minus 32 seconds, let's so say 0.00003201 seconds after the Big Bang, inflation was over. And then normal physics started to emerge with the creation of atoms and then later the creation of some of the simplest elements, which happened in the first three minutes. And then nothing much happened until 380,000 years after the Big Bang, which is when uh, the first uh, hydrogen atoms formed. And this is one of the moments that I talk about in the book, when you know we get we get this, this very old light from this very beginning of the universe that we can still see today in our telescopes. And, and that's one of the things that the book is about. How do we understand the very beginning of the universe by looking at, among other things, the very tired light that comes from this very, very early years in the history of the universe. Mm-hmm. And one of the descriptions in this chapter that I particularly like is the matter-antimatter collisions, um, which uh-huh. you describe as sister drops, <laughs> drops for particles, which I I understand where a little, well, intuitively, I feel like I understand where that comes from, and it's a very apt word for just a little piece of something. I, I like that. Um, uh-huh. But when the sister drops meet, they hug each other, and they disappear in a flash of light. Um, And kisses, on the other hand, are when the particles uh, combine with each other to make heavier molecules. So that was very interesting to me. So why this choice of hugs and kisses? Um, Again, this is something that came to me quite naturally. I couldn't use collision. I couldn't use smashing particles into each other. Uh, But the actual actual choice of this this sort of um, very affectionate vocabulary, in a sense, came from uh, the very first paragraphs that I, I, I wrote about uh, uh, when I first encountered this language, when I was trying to describe my job. And so one part of that was writing about um, um, particle collisions in the Large Hadron Collider. That's one of the things I study to learn about particle physics and, and the implications for the universe. And so, and so at the very beginning, I, I, I substituted part- drops for particles, again, for the reasons that you 
uh, aptly uh, described that it's a very a very simple and yet very intuitive concept to replace a particle just a tiny bit of matter drop of matter uh, and uh, and then when it came to the point of describing how they how they meet well it was it was uh, it was very natural to me to imagine this as a as a dance and then as a kiss or as a as a hug for example um, and, and and this language of particles meeting kissing or hugging uh, sometimes kicking each other uh, it's uh, it's something that came out of this this uh, mental picture of those drops interacting with each other mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay well in chapter five we introduce the concept of dark matter um, and the chapter is called dark rain and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Vera Rubin and what she figured out that contributed to this idea that there might be dark matter in the universe Yes, uh, the dark matter puzzle is with us since uh, the 30s, or, uh, so it's, it's over 80 years now that we know that something is missing out there in the universe, and uh, certainly one of the first uh, uh, hints of the existence of dark matter came from uh, uh, Fritz Zwicky, who was a Swiss American astronomer, who was the first to notice that the movement of um, galaxies in clusters did not match the gravitational attraction that was expected to emerge from the visible stuff that we could see in those clusters of galaxies. So uh, he postulated the existence of, of a dark component that uh, w- was responsible for this extra gravity whose source we could not see. But it was only in the 60s and 70s when, when Vera Rubin was one of the pioneers of making very precise measurements of what we call the rotational curves of galaxies and rotational curves are essentially a measure of how fast stars uh, orbit around galaxies uh, as they go around uh, in the galactic center. And the thing is, according to our standard theories of gravity, uh, Newton and Einstein gravity, um, those stars should be slowing down the further out they are in the galaxy, simply because they are further away from the source of most of the gravity, at least the visible source of the gravity, that's to say the galactic center, the galactic bulge, where most of the mass of the galaxy is concentrated. And so in the outskirts of galaxies, there isn't so much gravitational attraction due to the visible matter, and stars should fly as slow down as they, ro- as, as they rotate. Otherwise, there, there wouldn't be enough gravity to keep them in orbit around the galaxy. But she discovered and and uh, many other studies have confirmed since that stars do not slow down with distance from the galactic center. They actually continue, they, they go around at pretty much the same velocity, uh, irrespective of distance. And that cannot be understood in any way if the only source of gravity in the galaxy is the visible matter of the galaxy. There has to be more invisible matter, a dark halo surrounding the entire galaxy that's the source for this invisible pool, this invisible attra- attraction of the galaxy that keeps the stars uh, on their tracks, as it were, uh, and, and allows them to go around as fast as they do. And that was one of the key discoveries that she was responsible for. Mm-hmm. So this is also the chapter where you introduce mirror drops, mm-hmm. which is code for supersymmetric particles. Uh, what does that mean? Well, mirror drops, uh, again, because there is a, a very key concept in, in, the, in this theory that, that we call supersymmetry that, that's very well reflected in my mind in the simple words, mirror drops. Um, and so in two words, the idea of, of the mirror drops is that uh, in particle physics, we think that there's, there is more types of particles in the universe than we have discovered so far in our particle accelerators. And one of the big challenges and big aims of the Large Hadron Collider, the big particle accelerator CERN, which in, in the book is called the Big Ring, uh, when it restarts operations next year, will be to try and find those particles. So those supersymmetric particles, which in the book are called mirror particles, are particles that are uh, every bit the same as the particles that we know about, but for one key property. Uh, and this key property has got a jargony name that uh, I should do well to steer, steer clear of, uh, because the other point of the book is, is not to use jargon. And so the property of those particles, in simple words, is that Whereas the normal, type, the normal particles in our universe are divided in two families. So uh, certain, certain particles like to live together and to, to, um, to, to be surrounded by particles of the same family, while other particles hate particles of their same family and they want to uh, go alone all the time. They want to be separated individuals all the time. Now, 
for each particle in the universe, we, we think there is a mirror particle which has got exactly the same properties as the particle that we're talking about, but a, but a larger mass and opposite family properties. In other words, if the, the normal particle loves family, its mirror particle hates family and vice versa. And so it is this key symmetry, this key uh, swap of family relationships that's defined, that defines those mirror particles, and that's why they're called mirror drops in the book. And, and we think that one of those mirror drops can, can be the one responsible for the dark matter in the universe. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, in the, the next chapter, Whispers from the Dark, we get a bit of an overview of the kinds of instruments out there, which you've alluded to a couple different of them. Um, and these are all hoping to detect different effects of dark matter. Um, and I, I really like this description where you sort of list them all in a row with all of their, their different names. Um, nobody knows whether dark matter will finally show up in one of the big ears in the rock, in the flying farseer in the sky, in the huge eye in the ice, or in the big ring in the ground. Uh, could you tell us just a little bit about each of those four devices? Yes, those are um, those are really the instruments that I use for my for my own research and in my day job as, as a dark matter researcher. And so one of the things I do is precisely to take data from all of these instruments and try to combine them in, in a, an overarching framework that will allow us to exploit different ways we can constrain and look at dark matter using these different instruments. So one is the big ring uh, in uh, uh, at CERN, namely the Large Hadron Collider, where particles normal particles are accelerated at a very high speed, almost the speed of light. They uh, then uh, smash together, that's to say they kiss each other, and outfly new particles. And hopefully some of them will be some of those mirror particles. And of course the Higgs boson, or the drop of Mr. Higgs, as it's called in the book, was one of the particles that we found that way. Then we have the, um, uh, the, the big eye flying in the sky. That's a satellite uh, that collects a type of light called uh, gamma rays, which is a very high energy light which we do not get on the ground because it gets absorbed by the atmosphere. And the idea of using this satellite called Fermi is that if dark matter is in the sky and all around us, then every now and then dark matter particles will meet and, and annihilate, that's to say disappear and emit light in the process. And this light could be partially also uh, gamma rays. And therefore, by looking at production of this kind of gamma rays in the sky, we can try to detect the presence of dark matter uh, around us in the galaxy. Of course, the difficulty here is to disentangle the light coming from the dark matter particles from the light that comes from other normal astrophysical sources of dark matter. Um, then we have the, um, uh, the, big, uh, the big ear, the ears in the, in the rock, which are uh, dark matter detectors, which sit in, at the bottom of caves, or, or mines, that's to say, places where people bore to find, to look for pretty things to put on their fingers. Um, and and they, they, are, they are in very silent places where they are shielded by, by uh, kilometers of rock and other shield, shielding material from all other particles, that's to say, uh, normal particles whose loud chuckle would silence the dark matter whisper, as I put it in the book, that we're looking for. And so they try to, to, to detect dark matter by, by going in very silent places where nothing else can penetrate, but hopefully the dark matter particle. And finally, we have uh, a, a, another instrument in, in the uh, bottom of our homeworld, right? that's to say in the South Pole, which is uh, a, a huge particle detector, uh, three times the size of the uh, Tour Eiffel, and uh, that looks at, uh, which, is, uh, into, in, 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 uh, which is embedded into the ice cap in the South Pole, and he uses the eyes all around it as a detector to, to look for neutrinos, which are ghostly particles coming from the sun, which themselves could have been produced by dark matter uh, collisions inside the sun. So we're using an almost invisible particle to look for an almost invisible particle in the sun, which is uh, kind, of, kind of fun and kind of interesting. So all of those things are explained using a thousand words in the book in, in much simpler terms than, than I used here. And, uh, and, and, and these are the, the four different ways that we use nowadays to look for dark matter and try to understand what these dark matter drops are actually <laughs> made of. <laughs> so all of these uh, various detectors, you describe them as either ears or eyes. And I am just wondering, what is the relationship between our human senses and these machines that we've built? That's, that's a great question. I think uh, in one sense, like using telescopes, optical telescopes is a, 
a mechanical augmentation of our normal powers of vision, we can think of those uh, huge and complicated detectors as being mechanical, uh, aug- mechanically augmented versions of our senses, in fact. That's why I talk about them in terms of ears and eyes, because that's what they do, in a sense. They, uh, they take our normal vision and normal hearing capabilities and extend, that, extend them to uh, particles and sounds and waves that we would not be normally capable of, of detecting or observing with our, with our naked uh, eyes and, and normal, normal senses. And so that's, that's why I think about them, like mechanically and technologically augmented vision or, or, or senses. Hmm. And uh, just last week, I, I think I heard a story about a potential direct detection of dark matter um, from, I, I believe, a telescope, in a space telescope. Uh, can you tell us anything about that? Yes, uh, it's uh, this is this is a slightly different technique than the ones that I talk about in the book, um, and it's a very tentative one. So the idea here is that there are dark matter particles inside the sun, and those dark matter particles uh, can uh, can fly out from the sun. They will be uh, very light and, and very and, and very almost not not interacting, and so they can be emitted from the sun. And when they hit the magnetic field that surrounds the Earth those particles get converted into a type of light, which uh, we call X-rays. So this X-ray satellite appears to have detected an excess of X-ray coming from the sun uh, that could be a hint of, 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 such, of such process going on. However, um, it, it's very difficult to confirm whether or not this signal has anything to do with dark matter or whether it's just either a quirk of the instrument or something that's not very well understood about the magnetic field, or something of a much more mundane origin. Uh, and so the mystery remains. It, it's a tantalizing hint, but it's, people are taking it very cautiously as, as something interesting that deserves more attention for their studies, but nothing that can be at the moment hailed as a dark matter discovery per se. Mm-hmm. So when dark matter is detected directly, that will be a really big deal. Is, is that right? Is that fair to say? I mean, yes, absolutely. Never, absolutely. never been done before? Absolutely. And, and there have been uh, uh, claims of discovery in the past with very high statistical significance, meaning that people could be very sure that the probability of those signals being dark matter was very high. Uh, but still, th- those claims have, have, all, have all been disproved or either they've gone away or other explanations have been found that had nothing to do with dark matter. So the question is, can, not only can we find dark matter, but can we actually make a claim that will stand up to scrutiny and it will be robust and reproducible? And that's, that's the big question. And I think the next five years will, will, will tell us whether we are able to do that or not. And it's very much a case of either we'll find that in the next five years or we might not find it ever again because we are coming to a point where our technological abilities that I was talking about before are reaching a point where they can really discover that matter if that matter is made of what we think it might be made of. And if, if not, then we might have to rethink the entire theoretical framework and it might be that we don't have any other better instrument that we can build to, 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 to take us one step further. And so that matter might, as a particle, might, might be impossible to discover ever. <laughs> so the next five years are really going to tell us about the lay of the land for um, whether it's possible at all. Very much so, very much so. And I, I'm very excited to, to be giving my small contribution to this to this mm-hmm. endeavor by working with these data sets and with these instruments and, and really being at the forefront of this research. It's, it's hugely exciting for me. So do you think you could tell us a little bit about your own research? Yes, my, my research um, is um, is informed by, by the kind of concepts that I talk about in the book, specifically dark matter, dark energy, and the early universe. Um, and its distinctive characteristic is that um, it, it's very much data-driven. In other words, I'm a theoretical cosmologist who's interested in, 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 in the observations and in the data, and so my work consists of taking all of these observations, all of these data from um, instruments of the kind that we talked about before, and putting them together in a big statistical machinery, which typically uses supercomputers to to crunch those data, and then spit out at the end um, various probabilities for the 
the lay of the land, as it were, of the theoretical scenarios for dark matter. So I tried to learn about dark matter, about the early universe physics, and about dark energy from the data in a, in a statistical manner. So it's, it's, it's a lot of data-driven, computer-assisted uh, statistical analysis work that I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, in the, all right, so in chapters 7 and 8, Death by Fire and the Dark Push, you describe the discovery of dying stars, uh, which are useful for a very, in a very particular way. Um, can you describe why that's important? And also, what is this dark push? Right. Um, yes, yeah, so the dying stars are really one of the prime ways of telling how the universe is expanding in time. Um, the, the fact is, it's very, very hard to tell how far away things are in the universe. So you look at them in the sky, but then... Uh, you know, they might appear big and bright to you, like galaxies, for example, might appear luminous to you just because they are close by, or they could appear faint and dim because they are far away, or because they are close by but dim in, on their own. So by looking at how, how bright something appears on the sky, it's very hard to puzzle out where it is in space um, because, you know, galaxies don't come with little flags that say I'm 20 billion light years away or something. So... The dying stars are a way that astronomers use to do just that. To, to, uh, to, they use them as luminous signposts in the universe and because we have good reason to believe that those uh, explosions of stars at the end of their lives have all the same uh, um, brightness. Uh, by looking at how bright they appear in the sky, we can immediately work out how far away they are. So we use them as night table lights, as I say in the book. Uh, uh, and and we, the further away the night table light is, insofar as it is always the same night table light, the dimmer it appears to you. So by looking at these uh, um, distant explosions of stars, astronomers have discovered in the late 90s that the universe expansion is not only uh, continuing to grow, but it's accelerating with time. In other words, the universe is becoming larger at an ever-accelerating pace, which is something that was not expected because gravity would only make the universe slow down by pu- pulling it together. So we attribute the uh, responsibility of this puzzling discovery, which was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2011, to uh, something that's called dark energy, or in the book it's called dark push, uh, which is a new force of nature, perhaps, associated with empty space itself, that's, that's repulsive. It's like a sort of anti-gravity that's making space-time grow even bigger all the time. So how does, uh, are there ideas behind how this might work or why there would be this anti-gravity? Yes, they're all very speculative and one of them is an idea that goes back all the way to Einstein and and, and, and the number that he invented, he called it the cosmological constant that he put into his equations of general relativity to stop the universe from expanding. So he put in some sort of anti-gravity uh, so that it could have a static universe, a universe that was not, was not growing, it was not collapsing with time, was forever the same. At the time, in, in 1915, when it wasn't known that the universe was actually expanding, that would be uh, the discovery of Hubble a few years later. Uh, however, the origin of this anti-gravity, of this cosmological constant, if this is what it is, is very much unknown and speculative, and indeed one of the possibilities to which um, uh, the next chapter of my book is devoted is uh, the idea of, of the multiverse, the idea that we are but one part of the universe and, and that this cosmological constant, this dark push, can be explained using a probability argument, um, which would explain why it's, it's got the value it has in our world, in our universe, but not elsewhere in the multiverse, for example. That's a question that I that I have about the multiverse, actually, in the next chapter. Is the all there is, all there is? Um, <laughs> which is clever. Uh, so where did the multiverse theory come from? And if it could be true, would we ever know? So the, the revival of the multiverse theory is very much due to this discovery we're just talking about now, the dark push. And the question is, why is the dark push, uh, why does it have the, the value that it has in the universe? And it's a strange question because it's not immediately apparent that it's a question that makes sense. But um, if, the, the way I, I describe it in the book is, is the following. Imagine a table in a room full of coin. And of course, I don't call them coin because coins is not, it's not a word that I can use in thousand word lists. So I, I call them something else. But for the sake of brevity here, uh, imagine 400 coins on this table. And all those coins are showing heads up. And so if you walk into a room and you find them like all like that, you will think that somebody surely has been in the room before you and has put them down in this way. You don't 
you would imagine that they've been all flipped at random and just happened to land all heads up because while this event could happen, the probability of it happening just at random is very, very small. It's tiny. And, and in fact, the probability of, of 400 coins landing all heads up if thrown at random just like that is uh, about the same probability as the dark push taking on the value that it does in our universe according to our physical theories. And so we can see that we live in a very improbable universe, a universe that should not be uh, so finely tuned, and a universe that, that's very strange. And so the uh, multiverse theory is the idea that if you have many, many rooms, all of, all of which have coins that are thrown at random, well, sooner or later, if you try enough rooms, you will find one where all the coins have landed heads up, or just like that, just by chance. And so the multiverse is this idea that we have different bubbles of universes, all of which have different properties and different physical properties, including dark energy or the dark push. And we, because uh, we need the dark push to be not too strong for galaxies to form and stars to form and planets to form and ourselves to be here, we are bound to live in a corner of the multiverse where the dark push is just right for us, just right for life. And, and therefore, our corner of the multiverse will appear very strange to us out of necessity. We couldn't be living in a different type of universe because we wouldn't be there to observe it in the first place. So other than this uh, perfect coincidence of values uh, in our own universe, is there any other way to confirm that there might be other universes out there? Or is that our biggest piece of evidence? Indirectly, perhaps, if uh, um, some of the fundamental theories for how the multiverse comes about are linked to fundamental physics, for example, string theory, uh, that appears to predict, in fact, the existence of such a multiverse. Uh, so if, we, if one day we were able to, for example, prove beyond reasonable doubt that string theory is the correct description of nature at the fundamental level, in other words, that drops, particles are not tiny little points, but are actually vibrating pieces of strings, if we could prove this in, say, in a particle accelerator, for example, and we were convinced by the theory, then its implications, namely the multiverse, would also gain credibility. And so that would be perhaps an indirect way of, of proving it. But certainly, it, it would be a very indirect way because everything we, there is in our part of the multiverse uh, would be causally disconnected, would be completely separate from any other part of the multiverse. So there is no direct observation we can make, insofar as we know, of other corners of that multiverse. Okay, so stepping back well, a little, a little more broadly, um, as both a scientist and a science communicator, do you ever see a conflict between these two activities, or do they actually help one another? Not for me. I think for me, science communication is very much a part of what being a scientist ought to be about. After all, our jobs, especially the kind of science I do, which is fundamental science, uh, is uh, funded by taxpayers' money, and so it's only fair and. It should be part of our job to give back some of the excitement and some of the enthusiasm we have for our fundamental scientists, science to the very people whose money is paying for our, our the privilege that we have to study those big fundamental questions about the universe. So in my mind, science ought to inform science communication, of course, and active scientists uh, should, as part of their job, engage the public, engage in a conversation with the public about their, their work. Uh, and equally, the, um, the, the questions, the, uh, the feedback, and the outlook of, of the general public onto the science that we do should inform our research as well. So to my mind, it's, a, it's a very much a, a dialogue, a two-way communication process, and, and both sides can only benefit from, from it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much. I have one last question for you, uh, which is, what are you working on now? What's exciting to you at the moment? But right now, all of the all of the convergence of these great experiments, all looking at dark matter, is hugely exciting. As I said before, I think we might be on the verge of a dark matter discovery, and with the Large Hadron Collider at CERN restarting next year, with the uh, telescopes in in orbit and other uh, big detectors that we're putting in the ground to look for dark matter. Now is really very much the time for uh, dark matter research to be. To be moving forward, and so I'm very, very excited by those developments, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm very hopeful that we will see big news uh, on this front in, in the next few years. And so it's great for me to be able to, 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 to work on this right now. Well, thank you very much for joining us today to talk about your new book, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, it's not a large book, but it's just so full of 
interesting concepts and explained in a way that I've never seen explained before. And I think anyone who would be interested in learning a little bit more about the uh, modern understanding of particle physics and astrophysics would really enjoy diving into this. It's helpful that there's a, a glossary in the back. I appreciated that. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, absolutely, I would recommend this book to anyone who's interested in finding out a little bit more about physics without the jargon. So thank you very much, Dr. Trotta, for joining us for this uh, conversation here. And um, all the best with the new exciting developments in the field to come. Thank you, Max. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in Physics. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.